Hi and welcome to Scrum Recap, Scrum Recap being the first of its kind, a news, interviews and opinion platform with public forums, social media and merchandise that promotes rugby union. We aren't just a sports column, a reader's digest or a place for punditry, we are rugby enthusiasts with the ambition to boost the activity and reception of our sports. Rugby has been truly devoid of professional broadcasts for many years now, leaving us feeling outdated and relying on tradition. We want to be part of the new push that breathes entertainment back into the glory game. Rugby is full of speculation, predictions, statistics and opinions and yet there is nowhere to discuss this. We now have that opportunity with the Scrum Recap podcast. So my name is Jacob and I'm also joined here today with my co-host Tom. Oh yeah. And we're basically just going to run through uh, some of last weekend's fixtures as well as going through our backgrounds, a bit about the platform that we're currently operating on, as well as looking forward to the the new coming Premiership season and going over some other topics that we might have some form of interest in. Yeah, so I think we'll start with a little sort of basic introduction to who we are really, so get you guys a better understanding sort of our background, our um, knowledge on the sport and uh, sort of why we love it. So I'll go first. So um, I'm a prop, you know. Big old beefy boy. Always got to be one. Uh, I've played for about 15 years now, amateur level and a small about county level. You know, I hold on to that as much as I can. Um, I've played both in Buckinghamshire and Oxfordshire, um, mainly as a tight head. Can't be doing that loose, you know. Um, people get that always wrong all the time as well. I see loads I of people doing their lines, predictors, picking tight heads on both sides of the scrum. I know, it never makes sense. We're very, very different positions, you know. Just because we've both got cauliflower ears, you know, we look a bit sort of stumpy. Doesn't mean we're the same position. Rob Baxter would say something different. <laughs> That's true. It's true. Um, in terms of where I sort of uh, learned to love the sport, where my first sort of love, with, well, first love of the sport was, and sort of where I learned of it was um, um, watching the um, Rugby World Cup. Um, I think what year was it? It was the uh, 2003 World Cup, and sort of seeing these guys on the TV. So my sporting sort of history is very sort of uh, muddled rugby's the only real sport that I've ever been able to sort of hold on to but seeing these guys bash up on the tv going you know I can do that I may not you know be good at these other sports may not be as athletic but seeing these guys you know the skill involved and the physicality you know the aggression I thought you know this would be a great way for me to sort of get involved and maybe meet new people and ever since that uh, ever since then it's just sort of taken off really you know as I said I still play at NAS this day um, for a team in Oxford and just I love every moment of it it's a sport that has given me so many opportunities both um, on the field and off the field and I think it's a community as well which is always uh, you know working together and there's that sort of whole I think that's why I've well you know grown to love it and don't think I can ever really leave it yeah yeah no definitely I mean a bit about myself sort of similar beginnings I guess I mean I I come from a, a pretty strong rugby background I've got generations of rugby players in my family who've played at all sorts of different levels as well so I played Mm. rugby for about sort of 10 12 years from sort of five till I was about sort of 16 or so and then sort of had a bit of a a hiatus due to some different injuries and some different interests at the time and I've basically come back into playing some form of grassroots rugby again now um so I've played for teams in in Wickham and Marlow so a lot about around Bucks as well as uh further sort of north into Oxfordshire as well as playing over here in Gloucestershire now as well um so I guess my sort of earliest rugby memories would be something fairly similar really uh used to see Wasps at Adams Park fairly regularly I, I remember my first mm. game there uh, actually watching which was one of the, the biggest shockers of all time which was wasps losing to potent bees in a power gen cup yeah, match we, <laughs> which apparently that's yeah, we don't, the worst odds on any rugby game to lose apparently we don't need to remember that we'll just push that yeah to the that side. was that was awful and then uh, 
pretty soon after that, I think Wasps got through to, uh, it must have been like the semis uh, at Twickers and and then went went over to there as well. And basically the, the sort of love of rugby came from there. And, and same as you, mm. that basically brought into this community and, and been trying yeah. to grow it ever since. So, yeah, so that's sort of who we are, really, just sort of a group of mates. Um, there's, there's a couple more of us behind the scenes, but um, just we love the sport and we just sort of wanted to be more involved in it. Just, you know, bringing news to other people and just trying to sort of bring people together and trying to expand the game in a positive sort of manner. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we should probably move yeah. straight into the recaps of last weekend's fixtures. Yeah. Yeah, so the Autumn International is a cup, which I'll be honest, I was very sort of, you know, a bit sort of speculative, I guess I could say, you know, I was, wasn't too sure what to make of it when I saw it was being announced. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm pretty pro the yeah. competition, uh, obviously not, not mm. having the um, Autumn Tours, it's always nice to have some form of international rugby towards the end of the no, year, but uh, I thought it was an odd selection of teams that they went for. I, I was I thought it was even more surprising that South Africa dropped out the Quad Nations and didn't join the Autumn Nations Cup since they're only about an hour ahead over there. Yeah. So yeah, that was kind of unusual, but I, I guess it's been a really good opportunity for for Georgia and Fiji in particular to get involved in a major competition, and and maybe mm. for for Italy to get some of the flack taken off of their shoulders. No, I've always thought that more sort of teams need to be involved in international rugby, and especially teams which are sort of bordering that tier two, tier one sort of um, level. That if they don't get exposed to these larger teams, they're never really getting the chance to sort of grow and learn from the game. When you sort of you see that happen in world like the World Cup, where these smaller teams like Romania and Russia and the USA. Are, I hate to say it, are sometimes um, dominated by these larger teams and it isn't sort of productive. So this Autumn Cup is given that opportunity just to let them in. Well, yeah, exactly. Grow a bit and low. exactly. I mean, obviously in football, you've got the Euros, which means there's so many mm, other yeah. clubs and, and such involved and they've got the Nations Cup as well. So they've yeah, got, especially that's running now. Yeah, they've got plenty of multinational cups happening at the moment. And I do think the Autumn Nations Cup, if it does stick around, has the ability there to be slightly more sort of flexible and inventive than the Six mm. Nations does just because of it being a pool then a knockout competition uh, it just adds slightly more drama to it i guess but it depends how long they keep it round for i guess depending on the situation happening happening with um coronavirus and and this mm, france yeah. and fiji game being called off and such i don't know where the competition is currently standing in terms of viewership and, and its reception but i guess we'll sort of find out over the next few weeks yeah i'm sure they'll uh, sort of give us the numbers towards the end once all is said and done and uh, we'll know from there whether it's just a one-off competition or whether they actually think it's a viable tournament. Yeah, but definitely. We'll never know. So if we start off with the first game, Ireland versus Wales. Yeah, so uh, I yes. sat, sat down on a, a nice Friday night, looking forward mm. to some uh, international rugby and, yeah, did not expect the drubbing which I ended up seeing. No, it was very much a game which I thought, you know, while Wales have had their woes and, you know, there's been a big sort of change in the uh, coaching team and, you know, Ireland kind of have uh, a few strong results. Unfortunately, you know, falling short at the Six Nations, I thought, yeah, this should be a good game, good one to watch and, yeah, to see Wales be picked apart in that manner was very unlike them. And considering Wales have been this powerhouse that's grown over the couple of years to be sort of stripped back to this was very well, well yeah. I imagine disappointing for a Welsh fan well yeah no definitely I mean I, I obviously wrote a, a piece on on this game actually before going into the game a sort of prediction piece and uh, mm. the few things that I sort of predicted was that uh, Sexton was definitely going to come off injured so I already knew that was going to happen <laughs> uh, and then I actually thought Wales were going to bounce back a little bit because I, I thought there's perhaps been too much criticism laid at Pivak's feet just because he's taking over from a 15 year tenure 
that's a huge transition process. And a lot of their old guard, like Alwyn Jones and all those types, have started to fade away over the last two or three years. And these guys were mainstays in that Gatland team. So it was always going to be a new look team with a new look coach. And that takes a bit mm. of time to bed in. But I didn't really expect them to be as poor as they were. Well, no, you never really expect to. Sort of, you can, with say, premiership clubs, when there's a transition, for instance, you take Wasps with the recent departure of Dar Young over to Lee Blackett, that club has had that sort of change and the whole dynamic has um, obviously been altered and the club's done well. You would expect that to also happen at an international level and it just hasn't. It's almost sort of gone a bit backwards, you could say. Yeah, and I, I've heard people like Ugo Monia mention that he he thinks that the, the Welsh setup is in turmoil and such. And I, I, I think it's, it's too much... Uh, sort of disaster planning at the moment. I know that the last sort of five games have not been a good run, but they've also come against some competition, which is beginning to come back into form. Obviously, Ireland had a, an equally poor run in the, in the sort of last six nations moving into the World Cup. Uh, Scotland have had mm. equally poor runs throughout the last 20 years. Uh, Wales as yeah. well. This isn't the first time Wales have been dropping down into eighth in the World Rugby rankings. They, they did that in 2012, and that was under Gatland as well. So it was. Yes. They, they've had periods of time where they've looked very weak it's <laughs> yeah. it, it's all swings and roundabouts and I think people just need to remember what Welsh rugby has looked like over the last 15 years as opposed to how good it's looked maybe over the last sort of six years or so no it's, it's, it's a bit too soon to start sort of you know panicking and start thinking oh there's a need to be drastic changes already you have to remember that it is going to be a big transition period and you know having Warren Gatlin at the helm for 15 years you you're expecting there to be sort of bumps along the road but Again, a result like this is very, very. Um, yeah, it's, so. it's 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 not good for the for the progression of new players coming through. No, it's, it's not. not good for the current Welsh rugby setup situation. Anyway, obviously they've had these problems uh, internally when it comes to contract situations within the country, trying to bring people back in because of yeah. their silly sort of fifty cap rule. So it's it, it's it doesn't look good when people like Thomas Young and such can't even get into the setup, and yet they're losing so handedly against uh, other opposition in the home nations well this is the sort of issue i have when you have this sort of change of the guard essentially the younger talent can sometimes sort of uh, struggle and eventually they sort of fall behind the scenes so this sort of new wave of talent when you take your jack willis your will Rowlands, and all these younger players that are coming through don't really get say that strong foothold to make a push because they're immediately slapped with the same brush that the whole 15 team is yeah and they're seen in more of a negative light than they should be when yes they're young talent and yes they're played in some brutal games they are still there to sort of grow the squad from yeah yeah no definitely so I thought I'd start by going through a similar sort of breakdown as to what we've mentioned previously uh, and so I thought I'd start with yeah. the breakdown area because I thought that basically spelled uh, the disappointment basically on both sides I think it was kind of unfair that a lot of people said that Wales were lacking muscle in the breakdowns as I thought Ireland had equally poor spells throughout uh, in the full 80 minutes actually around the fringes and mm. um, the tide did sort of turn green in the second half obviously Ireland began to sort of push away but they did give away four breakdown penalties in the space of five minutes around the sort of 30 minute mark um the welsh however mm. i just felt they they really lacked like an enforcer in the loose so obviously we've seen people like tipperick and moriarty look really strong around the fringes um in this game obviously missing moriarty missing navidi uh, they looked considerably smaller than ireland no it was very scrappy to sort of start out and you could sort of see that there was no real uh how to put it sort of structural calm around the breakdown it was very frantic it was very much sort of a case of i think ireland were lucky 
they had um, part of yes, yeah, so yeah. being able to distribute the ball very quickly. So I think I was very, um, very impressed by his um, overall performance. But I think he definitely helped out an Irish breakdown, which wasn't exactly at its yeah. strongest. And his distribution obviously gave Sexton an armchair to play from. And then, obviously, as you saw, you've got the likes of Lowe and um, all those out on the back line that are then being able to sort of play free-flowing rugby, which then obviously all stems from having a solid breakdown. Yeah. But Park was there to sort of rescue it in a well, sense. Yeah, and I think conversely, uh, Gareth Davis, who's, who's usually such a strong player for Wales and has looked really good over the last few years. I thought he was potentially going to be a starter for the Lions. I thought he looked completely disinterested in this game. Uh, he didn't tap the ball once from any penalties or any free kicks. He had no sort of tenacity or, or speed around the breakdown. Uh, and uh, quite often, Wales were just committing silly little handling er- errors and, and fumbling the ball around the fringes uh, just because they were waiting for their scrum half to actually flip it back out to the to the backs. Not that it made too much difference because the back line was yeah equally shoddy. Yeah, no, you're right, you're right. But yeah, no, the breakdown was definitely one for both teams to sort of go away and see what they can sort of improve on. And while, yes, the um, omission of a few players, you know, sometimes can cause the breakdown to not be exactly as structured as it has been in the past, it's still a case of they need to sort of improve if they want to sort of make any headway in the rest well, of the Well, I, I really worry for the next few years as well when they come up against teams like England who have Curry, Willis, Otoji, um, even Underhill can jackal to an extent. Uh, you start bringing in people like Ben mm. Earl and, and you bring in people like Sam Simmons. Like that, That's a whole bunch of jackaling back rowers. And looking at Wales, I mean, Tipperick's, I guess, is meant to be that man. And, and I guess Navidi could be that guy as well. Um, but really, their best jackal is Thomas Young and he never gets a look in. Uh, I, I think this is going to be an yes, increasing problem strange. in Welsh rugby, not just for this competition. I think you're right. So I, I thought we could right. also move on to the, the set piece as well, because I thought the set piece was basically where yes. Ireland won the game. So Wales didn't just have like a, a particularly poor set piece. I just felt that they had no set piece whatsoever because they lost all their scrums. They lost the majority of those scrums on their own put in and they lost the majority of their lineouts as well. No, the scrum was obviously, you know, being good old prop. I've got a little bit of insider <laughs> knowledge, but the scrum, when I sort of, you start getting worried, you know, losing your first scrum, getting a penalty given away, you know, the alarm bells don't start sort of going off yet. But to have your starting prop, substituted before the first half yeah, is over shocker. that's one that, that's got to be a knock of confidence to the player you know I if I was in that personal situation it very very sort of you know yeah especially for I a young guy yeah young that. guy coming through yeah it definitely knocks the confidence and you know it's it just again that just gives Ireland you know that just tells them hey this scrum's for the taking this is ours and they pretty much did Ireland just went away with it I mean Wales had a few scrums where they sort of were able to get a foot in and I think they had a few back to back but Ireland's dominance was just absolutely amazing yeah, I, it's just I mean, you can't build up yeah sorry yeah you can't build off of a strong sort of if you haven't got a scrum distribution is going to be poor and immediately that's just going to the minute the ball's out to the back it just gives bigger and the lot just poor opportunities and they're already, already going to be closed down well, yeah I mean that, yeah that, that's it I mean I, I was going to go on to that the, there was no urgency from the halfbacks, yeah. obviously, around the breakdown and around these uh, set pieces. Uh, and it meant that Bigger couldn't really line his back line up. Uh, they were immensely flat. So he was he kept trying to throw these looping deep passes out wide, trying to miss men, mm. try and play the usual sort of exciting brand of rugby that Pivak has tried to bring in. Um, but because the, the, the set piece was so slow or it just wasn't coming together at all, Bigger's only real option was to sort of bomb it in the air, which did work successfully on a couple of different skirmishes but that was the only sort of attacking ball that Wales could get and I thought conversely on the sort of Ireland side uh, Porter obviously had a, a sort of breakthrough game 
He looked really strong in the scrum. He, he looked like he could be like no, a Lions did. starter moving forward or at least a, a Lions contender. Uh, Kean Healy is, is always a stalwart in the front row, so you're never going to have any problems with him. I thought the second rows obviously must have put the shove on pretty well. Obviously, that second row for Ireland is looking more and more impressive, and they're so young as well. It is, it is. Uh, and then obviously from a, from a back row point of view, any... Any ball that Wales did get around the set pieces was being snuffed out by people like Doris pretty quickly. No, it was, it was. But now, as, as you sort of made the point, Bigger was definitely sort of struggling, struggling, and bombing it up is not obviously the best option. It's not the one that you always want to be going to. But you can see throughout the game that there's these little individual moments where Bigger looks left, he's looking right, he's doing a little twirl in the middle of the pitch, going, well, "Where exactly. are my options?" and he's. He's coming up with nothing and it sort of fuels into that whole, uh, well, what everyone's been saying, that Wales are struggling. And to have your 10 basically on the spot going left, right, nothing's on, and then just having to resort to a massive beat up field, it's like definitely got to be questions asked and definitely well, sort of well, this, this is what became quite worrying because because Wales couldn't get any attacking ball and because they couldn't get on the front foot, uh, even when they were trailing 10 or 13 points down, and this was after the 50th minute mark, they were still choosing to kick for post because they just knew that they couldn't generate anything in attack. Uh, and I think that's that's incredibly yeah. worrying if if the the team has already lost the faith in the attacking uh, planning and str- strategies, um, if they're going to just be looking to take the points all the time. And it also didn't help that Halfpenny had one of his worst kicking games in, in a Welsh shirt. I mean, it was the the first time he missed a kick all year. Um, and then he missed two in the same yeah, game. So quite unlike him, I guess. It was. It was very uh, un-half-penny performance, you could say. It was just not as usual. Uh, yeah, and I, I thought on the island side, uh, I thought there was still poor handling. I thought both teams had really poor handling in the back line. So I'm not going to say Ireland's attacking line was too much better, but I did think Sexton and Burns both looked really good in glimpses. Uh, they took the ball to the line really yes, well. Obviously, further out wide, you had people like James Lowe who were calling car causing carnage uh, and that was against that was against was, pretty yeah. experienced opposition in Liam Williams um so I, I think Ireland were made made to look better than they perhaps were I think they were slightly flattered by Wales looking so flat no it, uh, yeah I think I get what you're saying that the Irish performance while it was say a good one probably isn't exactly as spectacular as we're making out to be considering the Welsh performance was just yeah I, I mean the last point I sort of want to make I guess on, on this game is that there, there were major defensive issues on both sides. Uh, I, I thought it was kind of an interesting area of the game that not many people are talking about now because uh, neither team really had to defend for prolonged periods because the breakdown became more and more of a calamity because there were so many knock-ons, there was so many penalties being given away. It was such a stop-and-start game. Um, but there were people who I thought actually did very well in defence on both sides. I actually thought Henshaw looked really, really good for Ireland and it's going to be a huge shame that he's going to be missing out uh, this weekend against England. Uh, I no, thought yeah. That's definitely going to it, definitely be a yeah, great time. 100% it will be, especially against... Uh... Uh, if if he, if he comes up against people like Ollie Lawrence, who look to be diving into each attacking play really well, then they're really going to miss that uh, sort of upfront uh, physicality. But I also put, thought people like Doris put in some thumping tackles, uh, most notably on his opposite number against Falatau as well. Uh, and I wouldn't say the Welsh defence was particularly bad this time around. And I thought it actually looked a bit better uh, this week, despite them sacking Haywood as the, their defence coach and bringing in uh, Gethin Jenkins. Uh, I did think people like Will yeah. Rowlands actually hit the breakdown really well. I, I thought his phys- physicality around the fringes was, was pretty strong. And it 
wasn't replicated by Alwyn Jones next to him, unfortunately. But I think a big problem with Wales's defence is that they just couldn't slow the ball down and they couldn't make many rap tackles either. Uh, and, and Ireland really could dominate the physicality when it came to the collisions in the mall. No, the Wales are definitely second to all, I think, nearly all collisions and just gave Ireland that front foot and sort of always be on the move, always be onto that next sort of um, next set piece, that next play, that next break. Yeah, no, definitely. So we could probably leave that, that game it, there yeah. because I think as much as you try and talk about it, it was it was just a fairly convincing win by Ireland and, and I don't think Wales were ever in the match to begin with. No, definitely an Irish performance to remember and a Wales one to forget. So next was Scotland versus Italy, one which, you know, after Scotland's very impressive performance in previous weeks and how they've grown, going against an Italian side, which is continuing to struggle and continuing to not be able to find its form. The first half, uh, first half tells a tale, while the second one tells a completely different Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's cliche, but it was definitely a game of two halves. And I thought... I thought, it definitely was. I thought a lot of people were perhaps looking towards Italy as a team on the decline, but really they're actually t- a team going for a huge transition at the moment. They've got a very young team. You know, that their halfbacks had a combined age of about 40, 41 years old. So they, they have a very young team coming through who have been successful at under 20s level and under 19s level. And it was only a matter of time for them to begin to get their act together. And Italy over the last few years anyway, have been a team that had been very strong for the first 50, 60 minutes. And we saw something fairly similar against England as well it's just they always tend to drop off into the last quarter and I don't know whether that's a fitness issue or whether it's just a tactical issue that they've never really had a 10 who could play the game in the right areas mm. I think that's an issue you find with obviously I wouldn't ever say that Italy's exactly always been a tier 2 team but with the lower the lower ranked teams you always have this issue of the 60 minute sort of mark being that point where they start to falter like as we'll go on to the England-Georgia game later I don't want to say too much on it obviously now but fitness seems to always be that issue and whether it's a case of fitness or maybe it's a case of game management I think the two could definitely be impacting one another and it's something that I think coaches need a a quick look at well yeah I mean if you look at a lot of these tier two and tier three nations that have really pushed on they've developed some form of style their own game plan and I still feel that Italy try and play to the same game plan that the opposition's playing to so whenever they play against Scotland they, they try and front up a lot but then obviously Scotland's become this quite exciting elusive attacking force so they try and play very loose rugby against Mm. Scotland when they're against England they'll again try and front up against the big forwards uh, and then they'll have people running hard lines through the centres just as England does Uh, and then they'll play against somebody like Fiji for example and they'll play incredibly loose again and and they they just haven't been able to develop their own style of rugby not like a Japan or an Argentina has before them or anyone like that. No they're definitely a team which I think tries to sometimes maybe adapt too much to their opposition so as you've just said they don't create their own game plan always looking at say all right we're playing England this week what's our game plan for them we're playing Scotland this week what's our game plan for them it's never a grown upon and a game plan which is um, changed and sort of improved it's just sporadic. Yeah they they almost need to develop their own sort of philosophy of playing and they they were beginning to do that back Mm. in the sort of mid to late 2000s when they had people like Castro Giovanni and they had Francesco Zani and and these big ball carrying forwards and they looked to be a team that was going to be based around the pack a bit like how Argentina were back in in, in that sort of decade mm. uh, the, the difference between them and an Argentina who obviously went from tier two to tier one and are now competing right at the top of the world rankings is that Argentina then decided to develop a backs game they then completely shifted their game from being forwards orientated to being one which is quite free-flowing and one which has a bit of bite and a bit of tenacity to it whereas I feel that Italy is stuck in the middle ground here where they want to be fairly loose with the ball they want to play uh, with with lots of sort 
sort of as strong attacking lines through the middle. They try and cut across the fringes quite well, mm. but they just don't have the, the gas to, to take it around the wings at all. They don't have any big ball carriers in the backs. Uh, so they're just lacking identity. No, exactly. So lacking identity in a team that's always sort of in two minds of the direction they want to take forward. So, you know, as you said, the early 2000s team focusing around their sort of their pack and the sort of power they had there, which, you know, as the years have gone by, there's, there's been glimpses of a back line sort of developing, but they're sort of at this point where with the new generation coming through and the younger players, I think they'd actually, if they can, you know, work on it, they've got a good team yeah, there no, to work definitely. around. So I guess the first thing to start with in this game was, again, a very weak breakdown by Scotland in the first half in particular. I thought Scotland are beginning to develop this really exciting, back row. They've got people like Hamish Watson there who's just about to reach his peak. They've got people like Jamie Ritchie there. Uh, they've They've got obviously yeah. uh, Blade Thompson there coming through. Like they've got a, a really dynamic back row, which I think could match any of anybody in the Northern Hemisphere, and it has also been shown to match any of the teams in the Southern Hemisphere equally well. They've got a lot of jackals there. They've got lots of people who like taking the ball to the line. I mean, Hamish Watson is a real threat in attack. But they just couldn't get it together around the breakdown. They looked a bit sluggish. They allowed uh, people like Pelledri to really dominate through the middle of the rucks. Uh, and I think they just gave Italy too much time. I felt that that Scotland definitely needed to, to put more numbers into the breakdown. No, for a Scottish team, which can definitely, you know, front up to a lot of uh, Southern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere teams. They, I think they gave Italy a bit sort of, not say too much respect, but I think they went into the game thinking, you know, Italy, not exactly the strongest they are they've been for a while and um, Scotland sort of got a bit bulldozed yeah the first I, just, half. I just thought they, they looked uncharacteristically weak around the breakdown that's, that's one of the things I would never really say about Scotland in the last sort of five years or so with these players coming through no, especially with people like Johnny Gray as well in the second row who he, he's, no, he's exactly, an incredibly yeah. dynamic second row and, and he's obviously a real cart horse for getting around the pitch as well uh, but where I did think Scotland started to get it together is obviously they've got some new exciting backline options coming through uh, I thought Duncan Weir was was always going to add something slightly different to this Scottish team. And I thought he played actually surprisingly well, despite being what is considered the third choice fly half at this point. But I do think if, if they do try and move forward into the next World Cup, they're going to have to make a decision on whether they want to play this Russell slash Hastings style of rugby or whether they want to play something which is far more tactical with someone like Weir. No, they've definitely sort of got a, I'd say, spoiled for choice, but they have got to also make a firm decision on the uh, structure they want to go forward with. And as you just said sort of do they want to go for this uh Hastings sort of dynamic duo or they're going to stick with this sort of weird well structure? yeah I mean the, the only other thing I could think of them doing is obviously shifting Hastings back out to the centers maybe do something which is a bit like a Ford and Farrell combination because the thing is they can't really yeah, yeah. get to a point where they've got Hastings on the bench since he is definitely one of their sort of top 10 players at the moment and if They've got Russell coming back in. They've got Weir still playing really well in and in form and potentially could be around for the next World Cup. Then why not have someone like Weir on the bench to come in to offer a different tactical option and then maybe start someone like Russell uh, with Hastings on the outside once they come back from injury? That's no, definitely a viable option. And why not sort of give yourself that you know, choice when it comes down to future competitions, a few, a future especially fixtures. since they've been there chopping and changing in, in, in the centres for a little while now. Uh, I do think it's, it's been a mm. been a long time since I've seen the same centre combination lining up for Scotland. Ever, ever since they had people like Dunbar and Horn consistently lining up in the centres, it, it seems to be fairly different from week to week. And I don't know whether this is a, a constant injury issue. I know they've tried to put Duncan Taylor in there a couple of times, who's another player I rate quite highly. Yeah. Um, but 
I guess conversely, their uh, their new wing options look great. No, they've definitely sort of got that spark, and they're definitely uh, sort of be exciting to see and how they develop and grow in the future. Sort of. Uh, well, yeah, I, I thought Van der Merwe looked very good. I thought he looked uh, pretty astute with ball in hand. He was he was cutting some good lines. I did think against the better opposition, against no. the better back row, he would be smashed a couple times. So yeah, now you might sort of uh, be shown his place by a few Southern Hemisphere teams. I think, but it's it's definitely he um, shows great potential, and it's uh, something I think Scotland can be quite happy with, and definitely. Uh, makes it difficult when it comes now to you know naming your yeah I mean for, for this game even though it ended up being a bit on a knife's edge towards the last sort of 10 minutes I, I don't think there was anything we discovered in this game that we didn't already know I, I felt with Italy that there's still a team which is going through this transition as I mentioned uh, they're beginning to get it together chemistry wise now which is why they put up a much better performance for a longer period of time against a good Scottish team and, and I guess looking at this Scottish team moving forward this is the longest win streak they've had now in over 10 years in fact i think it's the longest win streak they've had this mm. uh this decade and maybe even this side of the century um oh, it's the first time they've got to five wins in a row since i think 2001 or something crazy like that it's, 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 well, it's that crazy good form for them and i did say going into this competition that i i thought scotland could potentially be favorites to be in the final of it because they obviously beat france pretty handedly in the six nations I just I have a, a lot of expectation when moving forward for this Scottish team because they seem to get their their age range seems to be really good and really healthy moving into the next few competitions and they've started look looking like a team who believe that they can win going into each game. No, they definitely laid their mark and it sort of uh, gets me excited for this you know the next upcoming Six Nations and seeing how that competition itself yeah, develops. Definitely. But yeah, definitely promising, definitely promising, and definitely. Yeah, definitely no, I, watch, I totally but... agree. So we'll we'll yeah. move on to the England Georgia game. Obviously, uh, it was far from a vintage day at the office. Uh, even though it was a it, the, the <laughs> no. scoreline, I did feel maybe flattered England from an, an attacking display. But to be honest, the terrible weather and wet conditions dictated pretty sodden affair throughout. No, it's conditions which never make for exciting rugby. But it was one of those things that when I heard that Georgia was announced as a team to be in it, I was like, oh, this is this is great news. I'm you know I got excited. I was like, ah, it'd be great to see some other teams. You know being shown on the main stage but it was a performance which you know you hate to say it, it fell a bit flat at the end of the day and while the sort of the first 20 minutes as with all sort of what you tend to get with international games where it can be a bit sort of um stagnant and no one could really sort of break through but eventually sort of Georgia folded unfortunately much like their scrum did which you know they've sort of worked so much on it just was a bit disappointing and I'm always sort of advocating for these other teams to come through but it was very very disappointing and a bit sort of sad to yeah watch they, I mean they never look like scoring a point which is always worrying you, you have to go back to sort of 2003 to, to no, see teams like Georgia being dominated so easily and looking like they literally just couldn't sort score a point throughout the whole game. I mean, you could obviously with uh, everything that's going on at the moment and COVID, you could say maybe they've not had as much uh, match exposure. Maybe they've not had as much chance to sort of trade. So you, I've not really seen too much in regards with Georgia and behind the scenes of what's going on. Obviously, unlike tier one teams, the coverage is everywhere. You sometimes find that teams like Georgia and teams like Romania and that they sort of sometimes fall under the radar unless you're purposely searching and researching these things. But I mean, there was glimmers of a Georgian team like you know they had a few um, pieces which were strong and the issue was it was very much like sort of you know banging your head against a brick wall it was a Georgian team which tried to always move forward and never really sort of made those yards never made those metres and when the ball obviously conditions taken into account but by that by the time that ball had reached the wing it was a case of well, what next really there was no sort of spark there and yeah 
well, obviously, we'll see from the next game how Georgia perform, but I think there needs to be a bit of drastic improvement. And obviously, going back to England, it was very much once sort of they broke through, it was very much vintage, uh, vintage England, just sort of you know dynamic forward play and they're in so yeah, on. Just, yeah, I think very much in, it's, it's yeah, a pretty difficult game to analyse because I did think you know England did outmuscle, they outran, and they outmatched Georgia in pretty much every area of the pitch. But I, I think there were some notable things within this game which I, I didn't expect to see. So I thought there were two particularly poor performances put in by mm. England. Uh, which I thought were quite concerning at this point of the season, you know, going into the sort of second half of, of, of the Autumn Nations Cup and then obviously going into the Premiership season moving forward. I thought Farrell looked unfit. Yeah. I thought he looked unfocused and he was pretty disinterested uh, throughout mm. the full 80 minutes. And uh, I thought he's looked like that over the last few yeah. games. Uh, I, he made countless sort of handling errors, which I know wasn't helped by the conditions, but he also got bumped off on three or four tackles, organised a really clunky attacking line and it just didn't look like he wanted to be there. No, obviously, yeah, those who watched at the Farrell tackle in the uh, Wasp game, which was borderline a clothesline, something you'd seen WWE, maybe his tacklings, you know, he said that he's worked on his tackling, but maybe it's a case of, you know, the way he's worked on his tackling isn't exactly helping this team, as you know, maybe we need to go back to the drawing board on that one. Like, I, I do think Farrell's a great player and definitely can command his back line, but sometimes when it comes to, you know, matching players up front, while yes, he can, you know, put some stops in, the technique sometimes for me lacks, and maybe it's a case of he's tried to change that technique and he's not really sort of, you know, put too much practice into well, it. It's just, I just I'd be really worried if he if he does end up going to the Lions tour and he's playing at 12 outside of a Sexton or outside of a, a Finn Russell, for example, he's, he's got to improve his tackling at one point. If, he, if he's going to be sticking at 10, then that's fine because I still think he'd probably be a better tackler than somebody like Ford. But against a, a Georgian team yeah, that no, really, right. really lacked the physicality on the day, he shouldn't be getting bumped so easily. No, exactly. If he's going to be sticking this 10 roll, depending on what Eddie Jones yeah. obviously goes for, you know, he's, he's, he's always loved having that... Uh, Ford Farrell combo, but I've never been a personal advocate for it. I think if you've got two tens on the pitch, you're definitely going to be lacking in one position. While I think Farrell has filled that centre position to a certain degree, when there's other centres out there, which I think could be filling his shoes, it's just a case of, you know, I think I'm happy the change has come. And while Ford's tackling ability is not great, Farrell's, while yes, he can put a bit of a bosh in now and then, it's definitely can be well, sometimes yeah, on the same I mean, level as Ford. Exactly that. And I thought it was only compounded further because I thought there was a really uncharacteristically poor game being played by Slade on his outside who definitely did not look comfortable in a 12 jersey mm. because his, his positioning was awful. His handling was just as bad as Farrell's. He seemed to take really unusual options in unusual parts of the pitch putting in long grubbers or putting the ball into the sky when they're already in the 22. And it, it just seemed unnecessary. It seemed very by the books. And I think the experiment with Slade at inside centre should probably end straight after this first outing because him and Farrell didn't complement each other in the midfield no, whatsoever. No, no, definitely. If you've obviously coming off of, well, Slade himself coming off of such great results recently with the European Cup and the win with Exeter over Wasps, you'd expect that form to sort of translate quite well to the international stage and it was definitely a lackluster performance. And as you said, while Eddie Jones has probably taken this Georgian game as a bit of a chance to sort of show a few new faces, i.e. Jack Willis, which definitely needs to get a special shout, you know, definitely putting a good performance in England. Um, but yeah, Slade's, the, the whole putting him at 12, that isn't something I can see working in the future. And no, definitely. definitely. He's, he's, he's an outstanding 13 and he does it for, for club and country. And he, and he did it really well throughout the whole World Cup as well. So I, I think it was just maybe lack of options there. Uh, I think there obviously are some good ball playing centre options in the Premiership if they wanted to pick from but I think they just want to keep the same squad together the same faces together as, as they continue to gel and I, I guess of all the games to 
try and uh, to test that. I, I guess Georgia is probably the best game to do that in. No, it's, it's a bit of a safe bet, and you can sort of expect that you know worse comes. That there's always the um, cavalry on the bench to sort of come yeah. And, and I guess we could we could look at the forwards as well because I, I thought people overlook how good England were in the forwards actually this game because they were playing against a, a Georgian team that were were underwhelming. Because I thought. Each week we, we hear sort of calls for people like Luke Cowan-Dickey and Tom Dunn to come off the bench and actually start for England because people don't think Jamie George is dynamic enough. Uh, but he's just scored a hat-trick. The first person in uh, English history, the first hooker oh, no. in English history to score a hat-trick internationally. So he looked fantastic. I thought our front row options are now looking really healthy because you've got people like Will Stewart coming through looking really good. Sinclair off the bench looked really good. Yeah, uh, you've do, still do. got Marla to come back from injury. You've got Harry Williams there as well, who's also been playing really well. Uh, you've even got Ben Harris coming through for Wasps, who also looks like a great option if they do want to start using some of this sort of new blood coming through. But then I, I thought what was actually key for me was actually the new second row pairing. So I thought Joe Launchbury has been a, a bit of a forgotten man in the England team. I, I really think he's one of England's standout second rows. And even though Courtney Laws obviously adds a lot in, in ball carrying ability and, and in tackling, Joe, Joe Launchbury is, is such a he workhorse does, does. And, and would complement someone like Itoji so well. The only other thing I'd say is that Charlie Eels still hasn't shown anything to me as to why he should be a, a starting uh, second rower for England. No, he hasn't been either. Going back to sort of the whole Joe Launtrees, he's one of those players, you know, we talk about in rugby players that, you know, may not always have the glitz and glamour, which tends to be your forward pack, but always putting the hard graft, always putting the hard work. And Joe Launtree is definitely one of those players which, you know, his stats may not always, you know, reflect the performance he's put in. Just his overall uh, performance on the pitch normally does speak for itself. And he's definitely sort of worked his way back into an England squad, which if I was, if I'm being honest, you know, give it, give me a couple of months ago, you know, or you know, take me a couple of months back. I was definitely thinking, oh, he's lost that sort of, you know, starting slot, that starting second row position. But he's definitely worked his way back in. And Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. It, it's and promising. I think even looking at the, if we go on to the back row as well, uh, just to cover off the rest of the, the rest of the pack, obviously we had a debuting Willis mm. there who in 47 minutes had a turnover, a disallowed try and a try that he actually scored as well. Uh, but, th- but, but this was one of the things, this <laughs> was one of the things yeah, that we predicted going into uh, his start with, with, with England in the international setup is that everybody underestimates his attacking game. Obviously, we all know that he's a record-breaking jackal. He's the best person in the Northern Hemisphere over a ruck at the moment. But people often forget that he scored seven tries for Wasps last season, which is puts him in the top 15 or so of players to score tries in last season, in, including backs as well. So he's a real attacking threat. He's a strong ball carrier, similar to the likes of People like Hamish Watson and others from, say, the Southern Hemisphere, people like Sam Kane on, on the ball looks really good. Willis offers so much more than your typical jackling flanker. He, he does offer this attacking element. He's obviously very strong around the fringes. He dives on the ball as soon as it hits the deck. So he's got real guts as yes. well. Uh, and I, I think it's a, it's a shocker that he's been dropped going into this next week's game. I know as the news, we saw, saw the news coming in recently. It is very much, it is a very, very weird decision that Eddie has made, but maybe it was already in Eddie's head that the Georgia game was one for Jack Willis to sort of be trialed in and then he's now going to be going back to his old ways. But no, Jack Willis definitely offers a lot around the park. And if you're pardon the pun, he's definitely oh, a jack of all trades. He can one. give you a, you know, that ball carrying. Oh, oh, you know, I know. 
get me in the press. But no, um, his ball carrying ability has definitely improved. And you, you saw that after the sort of premiership restart, you know, after the break we had due to COVID, um, his game had improved phenomenally. So whatever he'd been doing up to the, yeah. in the off-season, you know, give me some of that. But um, it's definitely sometimes, something I think that sometimes England has lacked, is having that sort of jackal ability or having that reliable jackal ability. I mean, we've had the likes of Otoji, but only having, say, one or two players which you rely on can sometimes, you know, weaken your overall game but no it's definitely exciting and to hear that he's been dropped from the England squad just you know I scratch my head a bit but you know I try and sort of look at things with a level head so you know as I said maybe Eddie Jones's original decision was just a trial Jack you know you sometimes get this in these lower tier games like you have the likes of um, again I was surprised that Robson didn't start considering they would be playing against Georgia but um well, I mean, the good thing we'll with the debutants is that I thought they all actually played pretty well in this game. So I thought Ollie Lawrence looked really sharp, focused, and he, he put some great sort of ball chases in and he put in some really brave carries in the midfield. I thought Robson, when he did come on, obviously that's just his fourth cap. He scored another try. Uh, he looked far, far quicker mm. and far sharper around the fringes in the five minutes that he was on than Ben Young's looked in the whole game. Uh, I thought Stewart looked really good in the scrum as well. Mm. Uh, so that's that's a that's a really exciting group of, of new debutants coming through um, who who could at least pass mm. us through to the next World Cup, if not the one after. No, it's definitely promising. And as, as we've got these uh, next coming games coming up, you know, it makes for some uh, exciting performances and definitely, you know, yeah, the, the only other thing I can really players. think of when coming to this game is that I'm still a bit unsure on England's back three um, because obviously they had Joseph out of the wings. I thought he actually played really well as a winger. I mean, he's actually played pretty well as a winger before for England. He's actually he's one of the top try scorers in Six Nations history. And a lot of that came from the three tries that he scored against right. Italy previously when he was put on the wing last. Um, so he, he does know his way around the wing, but I don't know whether his uh, aerial ability is going to be good enough to carry him out out on that wing, but that might just be temporary. I also thought Johnny May has, has now joined the discussion of, of being one of the all-time greats for England wingers because he's now third in the in the all-time charts for England <laughs> uh, try scorers. But I did think he looked a bit shaky in this game. He hit the one criticism everybody puts at May uh, every game is that his his footwork in small in small spaces is really poor. So he needs a lot of room and he didn't really get that in this game. And unless it's a really dry pitch and a dry day, uh, he's not going to be able to really flourish in that England back line. Uh, but the, I guess the most confusing thing for me is that I thought Daly put in a really unusual performance. I thought he looked really motivated and really intense and, and really mm. enthusiastic on his return from injury. Um, but again, I thought his aerial performance was pretty weak. He entered the line pretty well on a couple of occasions and obviously uh, ran that 13 channel pretty well when he scored his try but he did also overrun whenever he was trying to pop up in the centers uh, and his tactical kicking as well just lacked strategy he seemed to just be hoofing it anywhere and if i compare him to people like anthony boutier uh who, who else stuart hogg matteo monozzi who are actually functioning so well in the six nations I, i'd hate to think that england have the weakest fallback in the six nations mm. no daddy's a bit of a conundrum for me that is uh you sometimes find with him that his club form doesn't really translate well to the international stage. You'll, you'll sometimes see that he would be making these weird little mistakes or, you know, you'll sometimes look at him and say, oh, he doesn't look like he's exactly completely in the game. So in this Georgian, like in the game against Georgia, you know, as you said, he was very motivated and he never seemed like he was switched off exactly, but maybe it's just a case of, you know, you can feel, sometimes feel a bit confident when you're playing, but, you know, sometimes it just isn't clicking and sometimes there isn't a, a, a reason for it. Sometimes it can just be a bad day at the office, but with Daly, you can sometimes get a couple of bad day at, uh, bad days at the office and it's just sort of, it's a bit unsettling when you've got the, the likes of, as you said, Hogg and Minotti, which sort of seem to be settling in and 
we didn't sort of mention it, but Minotzi for me is was really impressive yeah. in the game um, against Scotland. So you know, it's just we'll sort of see where it goes. But maybe uh, England needs to start looking at sort of alternatives. And do I think I've always said that you know, do I think Daly's you know ultimate position is fifteen? Because obviously, when he played at Wasps, he you know he did sort of play nearly every position, bar ten at some point. But do I think fifteen is his natural position? Like, yes, maybe he does have quite a hefty build on him, and sometimes it can be you know it can be very pinpointing in its accuracy, but I still feel like Daly is yet to find his perfect England yeah. position. If you sort of, you get what I'm saying? Like, you know, is fullback the uh, finishing, is that the, uh, well, the position that he's going to be finishing yeah, his I mean, career I, I just worry when, on, you, you know, when you do come up against teams like, like New Zealand, for example, who have McKenzie at fullback or they have Bowden Barrett at fullback. It, it, if England really want to be the best in the mm. world, then they're going to have to try and aim to be the best in each position. And I think they've got players there who are littered throughout the squad or even working in the premiership at the moment who could be the best players in the world in their position. But I just look at fullback and I even look to the premiership yes. and, and try and think of who's actually available, who would be a, a better option there. And there's actually not many because he, he looked far more assured than Furbank. I definitely wouldn't bring Furbank, Furbank back into the 15th slot. Um, I don't know who else no, you start to pick know. from then. I mean, obviously, if you, if you look at those top four teams, all all of the top four teams tend to have people from other nations who are their fullbacks. I guess the only real option there is if they decide to play Malins there, who they've obviously kept in the squad, and he's looked really, really dangerous mm. and really exciting for for Bristol as a fullback, um, and also has a, a really no, good has, on has. him as well. Also has the utility expertise that someone like Daly has because he can play twelve and he can also play wing and he can also play uh, fly half like he did in the under twenties. Um, so maybe he would be the other option to start be- uh, bedding in. Well, it's one of the uh, issues. I think England's always had so since you know since Mike Brown's sort of now you know left the international stage after he sort of you know started losing his number one spot it always seemed to be England used to be sort of picking like, oh we'll, we'll play our winger and fullback this week or you know let's pick our centre and it never felt like England was completely sure of who they wanted to be putting in the fullback position it was it was almost like you know every backline player gets a go at being 15 and I think sort of with Daly, yeah. it's like, oh, it's almost sort of stuck on him uh, to sort of fill that role. And, you know, we've had the likes of Joseph in that position. You know, we've had, um, like, the names escape me, but it's, it's never felt like a position where, like, you know, you, you look at, say, New Zealand with the likes of Bowden Barrett and McKenzie, which, you know, you sort of say that their position is 15, you know, and they can fill it well. England always feels like they're sort of just pushing someone in and saying, go on, give it a go and we'll see how it sort of sticks. And, yeah, it's no, just no, been definitely. daily time to sort of so, that role. I guess, should we move on to, to next weekend's fixtures and, and what we think? Yeah, we, yeah, we can yeah. do so. And then we'll we'll have a, a brief look ahead to what the Premiership season's going to look like moving forward. So the first game on the Saturday at three o'clock is the big one for me. It's it's England versus Ireland. That is definitely going to be uh, one that's going to be watched with me, watch with focus. It's definitely going to be an interesting game. Ireland coming off of a sort of, you know, Strong performance against Wales and England coming off of quite a, uh, you know, dominant performance against Georgia. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I I missed that out. It's actually Italy versus Fiji first. They've just, they've just laid it. Yeah, yeah. They've laid it out. They've laid it out weirdly. I'm looking on BBC Sport at the moment because otherwise I wouldn't remember. Yeah. So it's it's Italy, Italy, Fiji first. So (laughs) I guess, I guess that Uh, game's actually an even more difficult one to predict because Fiji, obviously they, they had a really hit or miss uh, World Cup tournament they they looked really good against australia they obviously lost to uruguay absolute madness and then obviously italy are going mm. into this with however however many losses in a row um so both team will be needing 
both teams will be needing a really big game. Yeah, yeah and obviously with the can- uh, cancellation of the uh, France Fiji game, it's not given us an opportunity to look at this Fiji side and sort of you know pick it apart. So it's definitely one nothing that open to sort of any form of result. But if I was to say pick my favourite, I think I'd be hedging it. Uh, Italy is favourites, but that's just my personal opinion. But it's a bit of a tough one, really. And, and obviously, we don't know, as with the whole COVID situation, whether that game is going to be cleared. You know, we need to wait for the next round of testing. But, you know, touching yeah, wood, no, but hoping no, it all agree. goes ahead. But I think Italy, Italy are just creeping ahead as my favourites. But, you know, that, that's definitely open to you. So, know, yeah, if you're going to, for Italy, um, I'm probably going to go for Fiji in this game. Reason being, uh, I think Rodrigo <laughs> will hopefully be cleared for this game. I know he tested positive last week. Um, he might be passed the next test uh, or he's got the next test coming up and everything seems good and that the first test might have just been one of the dicky tests so hopefully he's back in that midfield obviously you've got Nundolo's back on the wing for Fiji Um, he's come back out of international retirement to to be one of the real leaders that they perhaps need in that back line they've obviously got Vern Cotter at the the helm now who's a a really experienced international coach who can uh, who who actually did really well with Scotland whilst he was there too Uh, really laid the the sort of foundations for this they new did. Scottish team. I, I think it's going to be a really fascinating game because if Fiji, it's, it's the same thing we say all the time about Fiji. If they can keep it together in the forwards, if they can cut out any of the sloppy handling, then they're a match for anyone. And I just feel with this Italy team because they're going to be missing Pelledri going into this game. He's out for seven months. Uh, they're, they're, they're looking a bit beaten up from the last few games. Mm. They obviously put a lot into that Scottish game. Uh, I feel that Fiji could cause a bit of an upset here. It's, it's always possible. You never know yeah. Fiji. They always sometimes like to uh, turn up on the day. Exactly. So they, they might get yeah, absolutely What coming. you think they're going to be forming. <laughs> we'll wait and see. So as you said, England Ireland being the next fixture, as I was saying, I think there's definitely going to be the... Um, I think this will be the fixture of the week. How the yeah. three. I definitely see this being the worst. The Closest one, obviously, if England can sort out the few little niggles they had against Georgia, um, I, I do think again England being sort of slightly head well favourites again, but I definitely definitely think it's an Irish side which can meet them in the pack and definitely can meet them in the back line. Obviously, Sexton will be missing out, but I think Burns could yeah, it's going to be an interesting well one because it, it's Sexton be out and then Henshaw's also out, which is is a huge loss for Ireland, especially for how well he played last week. I don't know whether Aki's back in the centre; he'll probably fill the gap pretty well as he has. Mm. Done for the last sort of two or three years. Uh, also, James Ryan makes his debut as the Test captain. He's, he's this is his first game as Ireland captain. Obviously, a young guy coming through, very sort of Paul O'Connell type vibes there. Um, it's going to depend on the England selection for me, really. So, if, if Underhill starts in that back row, uh, if they continue to go with like Billy Vanipola and they go with Curry and they go with that tried and tested back row, they keep Launchbury and Itoji in the second rows. They they pick their first team front row. Uh, I, I don't see any reason why England can't really bring Ireland to the sword again here. They, they've been really good against them the last two years running now. Uh, and I think that where they've really mm. beaten Ireland actually tends to be out wide. Uh, Ireland will have a, an answer for it this time around with, with having James Lowe on one wing. It's, it's the first time I've really seen an Irish winger <laughs> who I think could cause real damage to England. Um, but then it depends if he's if he if you give May space, he'll run straight round him. But if it's again close quarters, James Lowe will be all over him. So it it could go either way. But I still feel England should win this one. Mm, seems we're in agreement there. I do see Wales coming out front. I mean, obviously the game against Ireland did you know 
throw up a few alarm bells. But I think the most interesting thing yeah. for me in this game would just be that pack again. You know, it'd be interesting to see if Wales and I'll be if I'm being honest, I'll watch this one ignoring the result. You know, I'll be mainly be looking at that sort of breakdown. I'll be looking at that pack and just trying to see if you know something that George is so well known for is having their strong strong scrum. And you know, after Wales struggled so well poorly against Ireland, it'll definitely be an interesting one to watch, and whether Georgia can get the slight upper hand. You know, I, I see Georgia again. I mean, you would hope they improve, but I see this being a Wales landslide. And you know, I'll eat yeah, my words I mean, if, uh, if I was Wales Georgia win start this one with a very attacking side, because I felt that's maybe where England didn't do enough against Georgia where they didn't go out there with too much of an attacking mindset I'd, I'd say throw the the sort of strategies and, and the tactical awareness all, all the way to the side because Wales just need a really big performance so I, I'd say that they should start someone like Sheedy or or Patchell at 10 they should go and put Nick Tompkins back in the outside centre mark um, they should obviously keep Adams in there maybe I'd maybe even drop half penny to the bench and put Liam Williams at fullback um, just to really give them an, an attacking fast edge on on, on Georgia because that's where Georgia will really struggle. I think if, if Wells obviously start with people like Thomas Francis in the, in the front row, uh, maybe start with, I think they'll probably start with Wynne Jones in the front, no, front row as well. Um, so that that should be a much better performing pack from a from a set piece or a scrum point of view, but that they do need to get it together in in the breakdown and at the lineout if they want to have any, any chance of of really putting this Georgia team to bed. No, it's definitely a performance which I think Wales will be wanting to sort of come out the gates after such a uh, poor showing um, against Ireland. This one, they sort of you know they've got a great opportunity here to sort of get back into form and sort of show you know show the rugby fans yeah, no, what definitely. Wales can and do. And if we go know, to the last game, go. which is on the Sunday, that's going to be Scotland versus France, and I I think this is going to be a barnstormer as well because obviously Scot Scotland were the only team to beat France in the Six Nations really stole the competition away from them uh, and I think Scotland will not want that mm. uh, winning streak to come to an end now and I think France will obviously be desperate for more game time No, again I think in this one Scotland's slightly um, very small margins I realise that and um, and I keep saying by like you know a slightly ahead of, um, teams are slightly pushing forward and what I think oh, how they're going to do how they're going to win um, but Scotland because it is such fine margins two great teams you know battling out I just with the form Scotland's in and the players they've got and the talents that is there. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on how uh, Galtier and, and, and Edwards sort of strategize going into this game because where I felt France came undone against Scotland, obviously they had Unterback come off fairly early and, and the, the back line sort of fell apart when he's not a part of it. Uh, but I think they really mm. lost in the back row. Hamish Watson obviously put in a great performance against France last time around. I actually think the French back row is really good. They've got people like Charles Olivon in there who just didn't seem to match up to the physicality of Scotland. Uh, I yeah. guess for me, France just need to play rugby in the right areas. Trust that Untermack is going to slot just about every kick that he has to. Um, they've got enough firepower there in the back line to really put Scotland away. People like Vakatawa, uh, again, Anthony Boutier, um, as well as Untermack, they're, they're very exciting attacking up. Uh, opportunist as well as Dupont obviously being there on the inside as well I mean he's a, he's a cracking scrum half probably the best scrum half in the world at the moment so they, they've got more than enough fire, firepower on that team to put the mm, Scottish no, team to bed yeah so I, that that will sort of round yeah, off the Autumn Nations one. Cup I guess going into next week, weekend so I guess the only other thing to look forward to this weekend is the abundance of premiership rugby that's going to be back on the screens I know we're almost spoiled this weekend you know after having such a long dry period of course I, I joke after you know having the yeah, the final only so many weeks ago but yeah so yep. obviously it starts Friday Harlequins v Exeter I see if I was to give my predictions you know uh, Exeter I think will well should quite comfortably win 
comfortably win against a uh, Harlequin side, which I think is, you know, definitely... Yeah, I, I guess it depends sort of on how their pre-seasons have gone. It. Obviously, Exeter are going to be missing a lot of key names, people like Johnny Gray, Slade. Um, they'll obviously be missing Hogg as well, but they still will have the Simmons brothers, which basically tick that team along. Uh, like like you said, this this Quinns team they just they just seem to be exactly lacking some cohesiveness. Also, Gustard has been linked with jobs away. I don't know whether that might have impacted the, the dressing room at all. Rob mm. Shaw's also missing from the dressing room. That's a lot of leadership out of there. Marler's out injured. Uh, I, I can only really see this going one way, and I think it's going to be a, a comfortable extra win. I do as well. And uh, this is followed by Sale Northampton. I. I mean, I after the uh, performance sale, sale was putting in week in, week out before the end of this previous Gallagher Premiership. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it will probably be a closer game than people realise. Obviously, Northampton will be missing uh, Ludlam. He's he's now in the England setup. They'll be missing Bigger as well, who's actually been one of the better performers for Northampton going into the back half of last season. But Sale only really missing Curry. They're still going to have people like Fafta Clerk in there. They're still going to have the majority of their back line still functioning. Uh, I think this. Should should be a pretty gritty game and it, it'll probably be fairly sloppy. These two teams aren't the usual type of ones I want to watch on a Friday night, but I think sales sales should probably pull away in that game. Oh, you would imagine so. So following on to Saturday, we start off with Bath versus Newcastle. Now this is a bit of an interesting one. I'm trying to sort of, well, look at the, I'm looking at both teams trying to see who's my favourite and I'm sort of struggling to pick them apart. I mean, Bath towards the end of last season picked up a bit of form and, you know, we're putting in some good performances, but do I think it's enough that's put it, Bath it depends back they're going to look like without their internationals because obviously they're going to be missing Yules, they're going to be missing Josephs. Um, I don't know whether Priestland's still there, I didn't know whether his contract dispute has been finished yet, so I don't know whether he'll be starting there. Um, obviously, Kakana Seeger's missing as well, so that's that's a lot of that's a lot of players missing from that Bath team, so they're going to have to rely on a lot of second string players, they're going to have to rely, uh, on a lot of the people who were coming into form, but perhaps outside of the England picture, people like Will Stewart, obviously, uh, Will, yeah, Will Stewart will also be missing as well from Bath. Yeah. Uh, but for me, I, I think this is going to be yeah. a pretty comfortable victory for Bath. Looking at the Newcastle team, they lost to, to Ealing in the preseason. That doesn't look good on them. Uh, they, they, they've just lost Sonotti Sonotti. Yeah, he's just announced that he's know. leaving with immediate effect, which is to the surprise of the majority of the, the Newcastle Falcons fan base. Uh, I, I think it's only going to go Bath's way. So then you can move on to the Leicester yeah, Tigers-Gloucester right game. Yeah, I mean, mm, Gloucester looked really out of form going into the end of last season and, and didn't look like they could close out a game at all. But Leicester Tigers should have been dead and buried. I mean, if it wasn't for Saracens being automatically relegated, Leicester would have been stuck to the foot of that table all season. And, and without Ford and Youngs, who I know Youngs has actually been pulling the team back a little bit. He barely makes a starting team for, for Tigers when he's fit. Um, I, I really don't have faith uh, in the setup that they've got there. They've obviously had Jordan Murphy has just left uh, off the pitch. So I don't know whether there's any off the pitch sort of shenanigans happening at the moment. Borthwick, I trust as a coach, but this is his first sort of major head role himself. Uh, he, he's not under the wing of any other big coaches anymore. Uh, this Leicester Tigers team need to get it together because they're one of my favourites to go down 
this season. Yeah, they definitely want to watch. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's probably going to be a Gloucester, Gloucester win. The majority Gloucester of the Gloucester win. team, barring Pelledri, are still going to be there in, in that first lineup. They're obviously going to be missing Ollie Thorley as well to the England setup, but they still have people like Cipriani and Simpson and Trinder and 12 Trees. And, and that to me is, is enough expertise and enough experience to, to get them over the line. No, I definitely think it will be. Uh, and this is for, followed by the last game See, of Saturday. I, I think this could be an interesting Worcester one. It's, it's a shame that Worcester won't have people like Duncan Weir starting for them because I liked the the Worcester form going into the last, last sort of the back end of last season. I, I thought people like Ollie Lawrence would play really well for them. Uh, like I said, Duncan Weir was playing really well. He was, he was a real tactical general in that midfield. But I think where Worcester were most impressive is that they could front up against any team. Their packs seemed to not be so easily put away like they were in previous seasons. And they seem to have these new mm. crop of players coming through who uh, seem to be really passionate about the club. The club seems to be rising back up in reputation again off the pitch. They, they seem to be very healthy as they always have. Have been they've always had a really good academy as well um so i, I could probably see worcester put, putting away london irish on the opening day no it's definitely worcester sort of uh coming back into form i'd say it's a club which still seems to be on the up you know after sort of a, a few abysmal seasons previously with teams putting 60 40 points on them it's definitely more promising yeah it's definitely uh Team yeah, no, I also thought season. London Irish um, were very lucky to to not finish further down the table. I basically finished below Leicester because I, I thought they were equally as poor as Leicester were throughout large start large stints mm. throughout last season. Uh, there's no real superstars there who are actually pulling their weight. They've made a, a series of, of terrible. Uh, financial decisions when it comes to transfers. People like Sean O'Brien haven't worked out at all. Waseki Naholo didn't work out at all. And these are players who are on sort of no, 300,000, right. 400,000 pounds a, a year, uh, which is, is a lot for the Premiership. So I, I can only see really Worcester going over in this game, but it will probably be a fairly close affair to start with. No, I, I, I think you're right there. It'll be a game. Um, yeah, definitely. And then, the and then we'll half, go into the final Worcester game of the weekend, uh, which is the big one. It's, it's Wasp versus. Bristol. Yeah, so if you guys haven't gathered so far, me and Jacob, of course, are a big Wasps fan. Having mm-hmm. grown up with them as our club team, we try not to be as biased as we can, you know. Um, but no, this is definitely a game which I'm looking forward to. So, as I said, being very much spoiled this weekend. So, you know, off of last season, Wasps did put in, you know, a few good performances against Bristol towards the end. And do I see that being the case again this time round? No. I mean, there's a few omissions from both teams. I think I do think Wasps are going to struggle well with Robson the omission of Jack Willis and, and, and Joe Laundry as from well that as, sort of uh, Yeah, you've got Will Rowlands, you've got as well as Robson, yes. they're all going to be missing. Is, uh, is um, oh, I always forget. Um, oh, I call myself a Wasp fan. Uh, uh, I believe he's been, he I been kept in the England squad. Seeing him in the England squad, which has been announced this week, so he should be back to club, I think. Because I remember him being called up. I think it was to the uh, well, the squad before or the uh, Premiership ended. So I think Umaga definitely will be having a bit of a, a bit of a. He'll have a tough day at the office there, missing the likes of Robson and his uh, his key um, okay. players in the pack. But um, I think it will be. It's a bit of a, a gritty one with both teams missing players. It's one of those that you're not really sure how it will go. Like, is there going to be a few players that are going to shine? Is you know, yeah, it, it definitely depends who you've got to come in. So, with Wasps obviously it, missing Launchbury and Rowlands, they're going to have to rely on Gaskell and Matt Cardle. Um, in the in the second rows, they're they're both very strong second rows. They they can both do a job. Um, Willis will obviously be back with the Wasp setup now. He's been dropped from the squad, so hopefully he should be fit to play this weekend. You'll have Tom Willis, Shields, yeah. Thomas. 
Douglas Young, they're all available. So you've got your first team uh, back row, which I think is the strongest in the league. Uh, you've got Ben Velicott, who's going to be the scrum half for Wasps, I imagine. He's obviously a very, very handy scrum half himself. He was looking really good at Gloucester before joining Wasps. And in his, his mm. few sort of cameos with Wasps has looked electric when he's come on. Uh, and I guess for Minotzi, you, you're going to have someone like Rob Miller there, who's obviously a, a very experienced fullback at this point. Uh, and if they if they did want sort of international experience, they could bring in Sapawanga, who also looked pretty good at fullback. Yeah, Sapawanga is uh, one of those signings at the start of the year. No. He's definitely not sort of lived up to what I was sort of, you know, promised. But um, ten, that 10 role has definitely been lost to him, much like it was in New Zealand. But, um, you know, I think he's found his position at 15. Maybe he's not always, you know, starting there. But no, I think he might be able to put in a good showing here for Wasps and maybe try and sort of, you know, <laughs> win some of us fans, yeah. back, which always thought, you know, <laughs> why are you still here when there's other players around you, which, you know, you need the opportunity. So I do, you know, I hope he can come through it's and I hope this, this, um, this campaign, he can get back to form of old. But it's definitely going to be a uh, a season where it's make or break. If he uh, starts having a few yeah. bad performances, I can definitely see him departing Wasps towards the end, and then obviously vice versa. If he can, you know, find a stable role, you know, you can find well, a few yeah, good performances. Yeah, definitely. And I guess player looking to, to this game in particular, we also have to look at where Bristol are going to be missing players. They're obviously going to be missing people like Ben Earl. They're going to be missing Max Malins, who looked really good. And um, they're going to be missing a couple of players throughout the part. They're going to be missing Sinclair as well. I, I think the difference is that. For Malin's not being there at fullback, they've got yeah. Piatau at fullback, so they're not really missing too much there. Um, in that back row, they'll still have Nathan Hughes as well. No, they're um, not. They, they've got a couple of different options, I guess, in that squad to, to really break break the mould through there. They've, they've, their back row's been perhaps slightly weaker than, than somebody that you'd be expecting to get into that sort of first and second place spot. So maybe that's where Wasps will really get the edge on in this game. But there's still going to be a, a pretty threatening attacking force. They're obviously going to be missing Rad Radra mm. in the centres, which is going to be a huge loss. Uh, and and all, uh, to be fair, they'll also be missing Sheedy. I didn't even think about that too. So so Bristol maybe could be hampered equally to Wasps no, yeah, by, by the international call-ups. It just depends on their, their squad depth which i do think wasps uh, squad is probably one of the deepest in the league no it's definitely um wasps have a slight edge i think but you know it's one of those cases that the players which obviously uh are away in international duty their positions being filled by players which obviously don't yeah. get as much game time it's their time to sort of you know show what they can do and you know make a uh make yeah a no definitely so can, i'm you know, probably gonna predict what a they wasp can do win what in they that can game offer. as well i predict a wasp win you know i always hope for one but I think it can be close, and I can think I, you know, I can see. Yeah, no, no, definitely. You know, Bristol, I mean, Bristol definitely still always have that the firepower sword. there. It, the only thing with Bristol, I'd be worried about is that they, uh, they seem to get when the ball went loose. Wasps are obviously one of the the best attacking sides in the league, anyway, uh, especially from loose ball. Uh, if if they do decide to mm. play as loose as they usually do, like they even like they did in the European Challenge Cup final, which they did end up winning, uh, I, I think they'll they'll really be taken apart by a Wasp team that just has so much gas. Yes, no, yeah, yeah. Right who so. knows? So <laughs> yeah, that win, sort of rounds up the, the Premiership <laughs> sort of predictions, I guess, moving forward. It does and then obviously uh, after that we will be sure to come back Absolutely. to you guys with our uh, look at the uh, results. And while you guys have obviously been listening to us natter on, we thought we'd you know finish with one last uh, one last topic. 
good discussion. As you'll see on our website, we like to cover all aspects of the game, you know, um, not just on the pitch, but also off of it. And it's we're going to talk about video games. EA specifically making the last big sort of rugby title back in 2008. And ever since then, it seems like, you know, rugby and video games has not really been a great partner to one another and it's sort of struggled to really grow. I mean, we have the likes of, you know, Rugby Challenge coming out every year now and then with minor improvements, but it doesn't really fill that same void yeah. that Rugby 08 did and all the previous titles. So we thought we'd take a little look at sort of what's going on and, you know, why hasn't EA taken up the uh, task of giving us a new rugby game? And, you know, many to, well, many fans outcrying, you know, like, well, sorry, there's outcry by many fans saying, where's the new rugby game? You know, we're having the likes of FIFA, NHL, Madden, and then you've got NBA being um, covered by 2K, games being released yearly, and rugby's sort of fallen by the wayside while still a big sport in its own right and one that's definitely still on the international stage. Why has it struggled to, you know, you know, have a game sort of well, come out yeah, in this, recent this years that actually thing knows the quality that we deserve? For years now, uh, rugby fans, as, as well as people who uh, know the sport and know the sport's global appeal, have all been campaigning for uh, some studio to take a chance on on. on what is now the world's largest growing ball sport. Um, it, it's obviously grown massively over in places like Japan. It's growing in the US with Major League Rugby. It's already grown in Canada where they've signed mm. some new deals. It's now France's number one sport. There's there's obviously huge remit there for, for expansion. And it's, it's a much larger sport than other professional games that we're getting for at the moment. But I guess where this is really cropped up from is that obviously Augustin Pichot ran to be rugby president last year. And one of his clear campaign strategies within that presidential run was to bring rugby into the digital age and that was something which has been sort of echoed by mm. rugby fans as as needing a rugby game no it's definitely one of those things that i can see myself you know weekends where there's no fixtures or you know no rugby it definitely fills that void and it's, it's also a game you know just sort of you can build a market upon, a market upon you know gaining new players via sort of having a new game come out and it's just it's it's baffling to me that we can have the likes of FIFA and other EA sport titles coming out yearly, yet rugby not even getting a say as they do with say for instance the likes of um UFC, yeah. which gets a release sort of roughly every two to three years. Why we're not getting something out of rugby. So, you know, we're not game developers, we don't sort of claim we are, we don't claim that we know all the ins and outs, but looking at it from a sort of outside perspective as a fan, you know, it's sort of it's a bit disheartening when I mean, rugby challenge in itself, you know, um, we give them credit, you know, taking on the task and, and not exactly having the same, you know, the same funds as EA does, as we all know, being such a, a large corporation compared to the likes of um, the people that make rugby challenge. I, for, I forget their name, but it's just been a title which has always sort of felt like a, a bit of a, a knockoff, essentially. And while sort of in the early days when they were coming out, sort of, you know, 2013, 2012, I remember picking them up and thinking, you know, this hasn't got the same polish as FIFA, but it's still, it felt a bit sort of like, you know, when you go down to the old flea market and you're picking up some bootleg DVDs, you feel a bit sort of like, oh, what is this? You feel a bit sort of dirty for playing it. But when you've got no other means to get by, it's like, well, needs must. But with the new sort of generation of consoles coming out, titles that they're releasing are definitely sort of calling back to days of old and, Again, it's a great time if EA wanted to to pick it up, but again, it's just it seems yeah. To be a, I mean, it, a it's lack weird of, to me because obviously, um, interest for, for me growing up. Uh, my, my interest from rugby was definitely enhanced from from coming out in what was a golden era of rugby games where so you had sort of rugby 2005 06 and 08 which were largely considered the mm. best run of games that rugby has had uh, and and for me 
looking at maybe kids coming through who are really interested in rugby, want to find out as much as they can, or as fascinated as I was about learning all the different teams and all the different players and all the different leagues, uh, for them not to have any form of digital experience is going to be really hampering on, on their, uh, I guess, knowledge moving forward as well as their their real enthusiasm for the game. Because if you're a if you're a seven or eight year old and you've just sat down to watch England versus Scotland in the Six mm. Nations and it it plays out a poor sort of 11-7 win to England in terrible conditions, then that's probably not going to bring your interest into the sport. So you've got to have something there which is maybe going to take that attention back or or maybe just enhance the sport, give it a, a, a good look constantly. And a rugby game will always do that. But I, I think for EA, they, they haven't really commented on the reason why they haven't gone through it. I, I do think there is a real issue with licensing. in no, they have Because obviously we've seen people like South Africa pull out the Quad Nations Cup. Uh, we've seen uh, lots of premiership teams and, and, and even Pro 14 teams teams chopping and changing most recently because of, of different issues they might have monetarily. Um, I think rugby as a sport is becoming more and more unstable yeah. uh, as, as a collection of different brands. And, and what seems to be a big problem with the modern rugby games is that they just can't license all those clubs. So you, you'll find that half the international teams are licensed, half aren't. You'll find that if it's a Southern Hemisphere game, which has been uh, greenlit then all the premiership and stuff like that they, they they will still be licensed but their international teams won't be so you could play as wasp but if you play as england then it's all a load of no name no faces all the competitions aren't licensed and i think if there's no point yeah. creating a, a rugby game at all if you can't get any form of licensing no it goes back to that whole sort of you know bootleg dvd so if it hasn't got that polish you're, you're only likely to play it once or twice and then put it down and go why would i bother playing you know playing it when it's just you know a bunch of no names and it's sort of hard i wouldn't say the games are half fast they definitely put a lot of effort in because you can see that from the way what they actually do produce but missing the licensing is a big issue because you look at the likes of fifa and madden and nhl and 2k you know um, um which make nba having that licensing enhances the experience you know I mean, I, I don't know if you could sort of give me a rugby fan that wouldn't enjoy, you know, taking the the rugby club and, you know, getting involved in sort of the whole aspect of it. So, you know, as a Wasp fan, you know, I don't know how much I, like, you know, I would absolutely love it being able to sort of choose that as my career mode team, you know, and sort of taking through the ranks. And, well, yes, it may cause me to sort of sit inside in darkness a little bit more, but it would just, like, you know, grow my love for the sport. And maybe it's just that, as you said, the whole licensing, maybe it's that trying to get all the teams together to sort of agree and, Obviously, FIFA still created a bit of a monopoly in the whole sort of football gaming industry, while Pez sort of tried to put his foot in. It hasn't really reached the same heights as FIFA has. And I think Robbie has definitely got an issue when it comes to licensing outside of, you know, TV and sponsorship, when it comes to sort of games and other things they can struggle. And it's one of the things that you look at and say, because the game is growing, it's a case of, you know, players wanting what they sort of think they deserve. And I think yeah. in some cases, it's definitely, it's definitely the case. But you would think that, you know, there's definitely got to be a happy medium that the two can reach. But as yeah. you said, EA has been quiet. Do I see it coming in the next year? No. Do I see it coming in the following year? Again, no. And after that, you know, yeah, it's I very mean, it's, murky it's, area. It's, in it's terms tricky of because it's also going to remain consistent as well. Because <laughs> the, the thing is, obviously, with Big Ben Studios doing the games at the moment, even though they're, they're as rough as they can be, but they, they've been getting slightly better with each outing. Yeah. Uh, and this year's one actually didn't get rated nearly as low as, as last mm. year's uh, game anyway. So hopefully they were on the the 
upwards and onwards. But the thing is, they've just announced that they probably won't be producing a game going into next year. So that that whole run of games has now led to being pointless again. So you're going to have to start from scratch anyway. Um, so I think it leaves a big opportunity for any big studio to come along. If they can get the licensing together, then then really they've got no pressure to produce an unbelievable rugby game. It just needs to be playable. No, it does. It's just we want... I think as a fan, we only... I mean... You know, some would say maybe we're asking for too much, but all we want is a game that's, you know, licensed, plays somewhat, you know, I, I hear fans say, you know, give us a remaster 2008, we don't care who's on the bloody roster, just give us a remaster, you know, yeah. we'll take whatever you can get. It's just, it's a bit of a dire situation and the fans are well, crying for until it. Until these they're, World they're, Rugby they're Union gets some new blood looking now, unfortunately I don't see someone like Beaumont really pushing the sport into the, into the digital area uh, era so you'd need some form of young blood somebody who uh, no, played console rugby or, or uh, has been involved in, in the, the wider digital marketing of rugby to, to really stand up and make a point about how important a video game would be uh within the mm. wider rugby landscape no i think you're right and it's just again we're not asking for a game that's maybe as fleshed out as fifa is you know well, I mean, we'll take the emission of a few modes. We'll take the emission of a few little things here and there. But please, EA, you know, this is like this is sort of getting to the point of ridiculous. Having gone on twelve years with not a single rugby game is dire, and as a fan, it's just sort of almost disappointing in a certain aspect. Like you know, you you realise you know sometimes you can't always get what you want, or you know you sometimes you know you can only wish so much before eventually you realise it's a bit futile. But you're right. I think we need sort of you'd hope that the RFU and all those up above can see that maybe to grow the sport, which I think sometimes as rugby fans, we sort of neglect and sort of sometimes don't really admit is that it's a sport that does struggle at times. And COVID has sort of shown that a bit, you know, the lack of sort of structure we've had to sort of save certain clubs and the lack of structure, we, uh, sorry, structure we've had in other assets of the sport. It's like, it's almost like a well, great the time. Is, they, in one they can't sense say it wouldn't sell because it there are, I mean, Nielsen reported that there's approximately 405 million rugby fans currently globally. Uh, and that grew by 61 million just since the Japanese world cup. Mm. So, it's a sport which is massively on the incline. People want to get involved in any way they can. And and to be honest, the, the merch and all that sort of stuff is great. But really, people need something which which they can take home, plug and play and get more people involved. Because I remember uh, even some of our friends and such, the reason they got into rugby is because we used to play it on video game consoles. Mm, yeah, uh, and that's exactly. how they understood the rules and that they learned how to play the game better. And I, I think, yeah, it's, it's already difficult enough to, to pick up and play that's rugby a uh, at a grassroots level or trying to try to even teach somebody who's a friend of yours to what's happening in a game as it's happening uh, at least a rugby game could be used maybe as like mm. a trainer or, or can teach you a little bit more yeah. about the, the sport in general no we can only sort of you know hope that one day ea hears our cries or you know even some other studio you know I, i'm not saying 2k don't come near it you know again they've shown that they can do it with the likes of nba and even madden and baseball in the past but you oh, know maybe crossed. one day we'll get the title we'll want and deserve but do not i see it years. No, fingers I crossed do i see it happening anytime soon unfortunately not so that's the first podcast um hope you guys have enjoyed it we realize it may oh, be a little bit rough around the edges we can only promise that we'll improve from it. here <laughs> oh don't you worry it'll be scrubbed up all perfect but um yeah we hope to sort of keep this as a sort of weekly thing bi-weekly thing depending on how popular it is um we're open to you know comments and you know there's things you guys want us to talk about this there's issues even at your own sort of grassy level this your club you know we're happy to sort of get out there and talk to you guys and get you guys involved that's the whole point of scrum recap is that we want to yeah, grow no, the sport definitely. and again grow the community that's um, based around it 
that you can be sure that yeah you can be sure that we'll be here sort of here for you guys and um We'll always be here to sort of give recaps of the week's games and, uh, you know, cover news and topics of uh, interest. So, as I said, if there's something you think we can talk about, there's something that you think that we uh, you need to be... Yeah, no, definitely you leave your comments and, and make sure Please that you give us touch. some questions moving into the next podcast. We might even make that into a segment moving forward. Uh, obviously, when the Autumn Nation Cup, Nations Cup does eventually sort of drown out and we're back to premiership fixtures and there's any gap weeks or anything like that, we're going to need some more topics to speak about anyway. So, yeah, make, make sure to, to let us know what you want us to talk about <laughs> oh we're so boring <laughs> we mean it we, we really do need to fill these gaps guys please yeah <laughs> we're so boring we, we are so boring we don't get out you know we're, we're all stuck at home but, you know the best way to catch us is obviously we uh, we have the email which is scrum recap at gmail.com you know please send your uh, messages there of course you can get us on facebook as well scrum recap you know, we'll respond pretty quickly. Which, well, we try to at least. Um, and again, um, yeah, definitely. If, you know, anything, please just do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you guys. Bye bye. Catch you guys all next week. Bye.